If you have Bibles, uh, we're going to be in the book of James chapter 5 this morning, so you can go ahead and make your way there. We are this morning beginning uh, the final chapter uh, of the book of James. We've been in this book for a couple months. Uh, We'll finish it up here uh, during the month of March, just before we start a new series um, on Easter Sunday. Before we really dive into this text this morning, uh, I want to venture a guess at to where some of you, and, and really maybe uh, many of you, might find yourself this morning. James, and if you've been with us, you'll, you'll know this already, uh, James is a hard letter. It's a hard letter. He calls the people of God to costly obedience in many areas of life. Uh, he calls them to an incredibly active faith. And the language of this letter only intensifies uh, as it progresses. We also, this morning, find ourselves uh, rapidly approaching the halfway point of the season of Lent. And together, during the season of Lent, we're asking God to search us, to know us, uh, to expose those areas of our lives where we are sinful, where there's sin that remains in us, and we're asking God to transform us more and more uh, into the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. But if you're really asking God to do that in your life, if you're really and sincerely asking God to search you and know you and transform you, that's really painful. Uh, That's a really painful process because you start to see some really ugly things in your own life and in your own heart. So this week, I got really angry. I got really angry. I don't consider myself to be a particularly angry person. Uh, My family and my friends that know me don't consider me a particularly angry person. But multiple times in a single day this week, relatively small things, like losing car keys, um, getting lost while driving, uh, multiple times in the same day, there was this internal rage that just started to flare up in me. And my response to that, I don't know what you think pastors are like, if they're like, you know, if you have them on a pedestal or not. My internal response to that was not like, praise God, he's making me more like Jesus. He's exposing my anger. This is good. My response was, I hate the world, I hate people, everything's terrible. <laughs> the next morning, after this, um, this day where just these instances were bringing out this rage in me, that was when I had blocked out some time to, um, to read and study James chapter 5. And a little tip that they may or may not teach you in seminary, rage is not the ideal emotion from which you want to prepare a sermon <laughs> Or preach a sermon. People do it, but it's not, it's not recommended. And so as I opened up my Bible and I saw this header in James 5, maybe it's the same header that's in yours, warning to the rich. In that moment, I, I was just in no mood to be rebuked for my relative wealth. Um, I was in no mood to be rebuked for my, well, my relative comfort and ease, my misuse of, of wealth. So I don't know what this week's been like for you. I share that because I think it's quite probable that many of you open up your Bibles this morning not with an eagerness, um, not with a hunger to know God and to be known by God, but rather instead, what I was experiencing this week, a reluctant, uh, hesitant guardedness that's just ready when you read a header like that to sit back and just tune out. There's already a million other things on your mind. Or, or maybe in the season of Lent especially, there's this other aspect of sinfulness in your life that you're already just consumed by. You don't want to add other things to that list. So I want to start this morning by reminding you, just as I've had to remind myself this week, this paradox of the gospel, which is that life, real life, is found 
not doing an end around death, but life is found through death, that by giving up our striving, by giving up trying to prove something, to prove that we're good enough or doing well enough, that's when we really gain the grace of God. And ultimately, that it's when you see your sin most clearly, uh, when you really see those ugliest parts of your life that aren't exposed at other times in your life, that is the moment when you also perceive the worth of Jesus most clearly. And you also perceive most clearly the beauty of what you are becoming in him. So I want to invite you this morning, truly uh, with open ears, not to despair, uh, not to give up in your exhaustion, but to listen uh, to the words of this book that we love. This is James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by, by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we truly need your grace when we encounter a text like this. Uh, We remember this morning that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for your word, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, who is the bread of heaven. Amen. There's an important uh, shift that happens between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of James chapter 5. Both of these passages uh, address well-to-do people. But where the end of chapter 4 is almost certainly addressed to those who are already Christians, the opening verses of chapter 5 pivots to address non-Christians. You'll notice in these verses in chapter 5 that unlike the end of chapter 4, there's no faithful option or faithful alternative given. We looked last week at the end of James chapter 4 about the arrogant ways that we plan our lives and live our lives without reference to God. But there's a faithful option offered there. James says, instead of living that way, Live this way. Live as if the will of God actually matters in your life. Here there's no instead. There's no other option. And James here is essentially just saying, weep and howl because of the coming judgment. Though it's addressed to rich non-Christians, so that was the original intended audience of this, there's a lot here for those who are already Christians to learn from as well. And so we'll look at this text from two different vantage points this morning. First, that it's a condemnation of rich non-Christians. And second, that it's a call to rich Christians. So first, a condemnation of rich non-Christians. In the Bible, the word rich is not just an economic term. In the Bible, the word rich is also a theological and a moral term. So sometimes when you see the word rich in the Bible, it means simply um, possessing a lot of money, having a lot of wealth. But other times, the term itself highlights, just without saying anything else, the abuses of wealth. Uh, The wrong ways that we are prone to as human beings accumulate wealth and then misuse it. 
Rich can even mean in Scripture, it can become a synonym for the word unrighteous. Sometimes you can substitute one for the other in different passages in Scripture. So James is not here, and Casey alluded to this earlier, is not condemning having money in and of itself, nor is he condemning any particular economic system. There have been those throughout the history, uh, particularly of the last several hundred years, that have used this passage specifically um, to denounce entire economic systems like capitalism, for example. But really, that's not what James is after here. The essence of what James is rebuking here is aimed not at an economic system, any one of them in particular, but the evil proclivity of the human heart to gain wealth and to use wealth in unrighteous ways. And that's exactly what wealthy landowners in these cities and towns, where James is writing this letter to these churches, that's exactly what wealthy landowners were doing. And as James warns them about these miseries that are coming upon them, he lays out really three evidences against them. One, he says that they have laid up treasure in the last days. About uh, nine or ten years ago, uh, A&E rolled out a reality series called Hoarders. Uh, anybody familiar with that, that reality series? It chronicles uh, the stories of people uh, who compulsively obtain and then keep things. So much so, and if you've seen the show, you, you know like how crazy it actually gets in some of those houses. So much so that you can't really walk around their home anymore. And most of the time, the home is just absolutely revolting. There's unclean spills. Uh, there's rotting food. There's laundry everywhere. There's trash everywhere. There's piles of stuff everywhere or scattered throughout the house. Uh, as many of you know, um, Terry Fisher from our own church, one of our members here, is down in Houston right now serving uh, in some of the relief and rebuilding efforts uh, after Hurricane Harvey hit in that area this past fall. This is something that he came across uh, firsthand recently. Uh, someone in one of the homes that he was helping to rebuild uh, was a hoarder. And so there would be furniture uh, and other items that were clearly damaged by the flood and therefore probably you know, starting to grow mold and things like that, like a, like a sofa that had been waterlogged and so molding. And Terry and the other team members would point out, hey, there's this water damage here. It's not really salvageable. We're going to go ahead and take that out to the dumpster for you. They would take it out to the dumpster only to find a couple hours later that that item had been dragged back into the garage or back into the house. Uh, it's horrifying. Uh, it's disgusting. It's maddening when you see that play out in action. But what hoarders do with stuff, people in our society do with money and wealth all the time. We compulsively obtain it, and then we hold on to it. We hoard it. Uh, We find our worth and we find our identity in it. Uh, We keep needing more and more. And this question of how much is enough, well, the answer is always, well, just a little bit more than I have now. All the way to to the extent of someone like John D. Rockefeller who just said, a million more. Just a million more and I'll be content. And like the rotten smells in the homes of people on that reality show, we become oblivious to it. We become oblivious to just how horrific that actually is because it's just normal life to us now. James says here in verse 2, riches rot. Uh, The garments are moth-eaten. The gold and silver have corroded. Many of you are walking through Jen Wilkins' study right now in the book of James. She insightfully points out, gold and silver don't actually rust. They're not metals that are given to rust. But James here is driving home the point that even our most quote-unquote safe 
and secure possessions. And wealth is temporary and transitory. The imagery here also points out how horrible a a misuse of wealth this actually is. For something unrustable like gold and silver to rust means it's just been sitting there and not actually utilized the way that it's intended to be utilized. John Calvin, famous reformer, put it this way, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. So these treasures that these rich people have been building up, they afford no lasting benefit, no eternal benefit to the people that are accumulating them, and they also serve as a witness against them for not using what they have to meet their own needs and the needs of others. That's the first evidence. Second one, they have defrauded and exploited poor laborers. They've defrauded and exploited poor laborers. Uh, New Testament historians point out that during the first century, there was an increasing concentration of land in the hands of a wealthy few rich people. So in turn, there were many poor farmers, an increasing number of poor farmers, that had to hire themselves out to rich landlords. And because they had less and less to live on, and because there were no such things in that day as credit cards, they were also dependent uh, on getting paid every single day. They needed that fund, those funds every single day so they could turn around and buy food for their families. But instead of paying them a fair wage, the unrighteous rich that James is speaking to here, they are defrauding their laborers. And here's what's incredible. And maybe you heard this as we read it. It's not only the victims that are crying out to God. It's the unpaid wages that are also crying out to God. It's it's like all the way back in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. And it says there in Genesis chapter 4 that the blood of Abel cried out to God. There was a cry from Abel's blood to God for justice. Every aspect of this world is created by God. And therefore, everything in this world, whether it's animate or inanimate, groans under the weight of injustice, groans under the weight of sin. And so God hears not only the cries of the harvesters in this passage, he hears the cries of the wages themselves. There's a more subtle form of this that I think exists in our modern world. And that is in the name of philanthropy, wealthy people will establish organizations or foundations or donate a ton of money to build buildings, which is sometimes uh, actually beautiful and actually philanthropic. Right? That, you probably attended an institution at some point in your life that was built by the donations of someone that had a lot of money. And perhaps, maybe even likely in that case, it was a beautiful and truly philanthropic thing. But it's not truly beautiful and philanthropic if all of that wealth was accumulated by defrauding workers out of their wages. An example from even the, the history of our own state, state of Pennsylvania. Andrew Carnegie was an incredibly rich man who gave away a huge amount of his wealth, something like 90% of his wealth he gave away by the time he died. The list of things that he founded with that money is massive, something like 2,000 libraries that he built with that money. And he is known as one of America's greatest philanthropists of all time. But consider what one of his steelworkers, speaking no doubt not just for himself but also as the voice of many others, once told an interviewer. Steelworker said, We didn't want him to build a library for us. We would have rather had higher wages. 
And as one author explained that quote, at that time, steelworkers worked 12-hour shifts. Every two-hour weeks, to every two weeks, they had to work one 24-hour shift, and then they got their one day off in two weeks before doing it again. The best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. And as this interviewer explained, most of them died in their 40s or earlier from accidents or disease. So you wonder why James says here in verse 6 that the rich condemn and murder the righteous poor person. It's not that they're out there in the fields like with weapons and actually murdering these people physically with their hands. It's that operating this way, running the land this way, pronounces a death sentence on these poor people. There's an extra biblical work written about 200 years before Jesus' birth, and it puts it this way. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed blood. And so here's the big idea. The ends don't justify the means. In the kingdom of God, the means matter just as much as the ends do. And there's no plan of philanthropic self-salvation that can buy you out of defrauding laborers the wages that you owe them. Those buildings, those scholarships, those foundations, like the wages James refers to in James chapter 5, they will cry out to God about the injustice. So the rich have laid up treasure in the last days. They've exploited poor laborers. The third evidence is that they have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Three little words, easily unnoticed, may call the difference here. And those words are, on the earth. On the earth. It means that the unrighteous rich people are living completely backward to the design and the will of God. It means that they're living their best life now, on the earth, rather than living before the face of an eternal God with their best lives reserved for that eternity with him. James is pointing to that same reality when he says the last days, that they've stored things up for the treasures up for themselves in the last days back in verse 3. Or here in verse 5, that to live in luxury and to live in self-indulgence on the earth is to fatten your heart in a day of slaughter. So the last days in Scripture, when we see that phrase, that means that we are presently waiting attentively for the return of Jesus Christ. We are waiting for the consummation of the kingdom of God. That there is coming for us, and we are in those days, we're not waiting for like another thing to happen until the return of Christ. That there's a day of judgment and justice coming. And James is warning here, that justice and judgment, that's good news for those who are righteous and who are looking to Christ to be their righteousness, but it's bad news, it's miserable news, for the unrighteous. But if we're oblivious to that, uh, or worse, if we willfully ignore it, that's like fattening up an animal before it heads to the butcher. It's what Paul says in Romans 2, that the unrighteous rich are with these hard and impenitent hearts. They're storing up more and more wrath for themselves on the day of God's justice, when his justice comes. It's one thing to address the immoral, unjust behavior of rich people. But the real issue, and James is talking about this in this text deep down, is that to live this way really is to set yourself up in defiance of God. Beneath all of these corroding clothes and beneath all of these, this corroding gold and this corroding silver lies a corroded heart. And storing up treasure on this earth, that's one of the clearest evidences in our lives that our heart is anchored in this life rather than in the one to come, rather than in the kingdom of God. And we read it before as we prepared to confess our own sin. 
that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, where your heart is, there your treasure, where your treasure is, I'm sorry, there your heart will be also. And therefore, James says, the unrighteous rich should weep and howl for the justice of God is coming because like any of us, apart from repentance, that justice is misery for those who act unjustly in the course of this life. So that's this weighty, hard words of condemnation for um, wealthy, rich, non-Christians. Next, let's talk about how this text is also a call to those who are are rich Christians and already have looked to Christ. Uh, Let me say this. Perhaps some of you in the room... Are we doing all right, guys? Um, Perhaps some of you in the room are wealthy uh, non-Christians. And you're here, you're, you're considering what Christianity is and what Christians believe. Um, if so, here's what I'd say to you. Better? Yeah, there we go. Um, if that's you, if, that, if you are actually part of what the original audience would be for James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, you're hearing a part of Scripture, and there are many of them, the purpose of which is to expose the wickedness that exists in each of our hearts. Uh, the purpose of which is to drive us to see our need for rescue and salvation and forgiveness that God alone can provide to us. And so if that's you, and you hear this, and it begins to break you, what I would plead with you is don't turn away from that. Uh, don't tune out from that. Everyone in this room who is a Christian has been in one way or more likely a thousand ways uh, utterly wrecked by a clear vision of their own sin. Driven to desperation for the work of Jesus Christ to count on our behalf. And so if you are wrecked by your sin when you read these hard passages of Scripture like James chapter 5, then on behalf of every sincere Christian on the face of the earth, what I would say to you is welcome to the club. Welcome. That's what all, that's what's true of every single person that ever comes to faith in Christ with any kind of sincerity. We've been wrecked by a clear vision of our own sinfulness. And wherever you are in that, don't stay there, but know for sure that you are not beyond the grace of God. Most in this room, however, are not among this original intended audience that James has in mind in these verses. And so even for us, the text is going to call us to a few things. One is this, that we must be sensitive to the dangers of wealth in our own lives. Casey spoke to this earlier really well. As Christians in America in the 21st century, we have a tendency, I think, to function at least financially, as well as other ways, but at least financially, as if the existence of God is inconsequential. So we have to ask ourselves, what difference does the truth of God, the existence of God, the reality of God make in the way that I think about and handle my money? How have I uh, accumulated the money that I actually have right now? How am I accumulating the money that I'm gaining right now? How am I utilizing the money I have? Those are questions that we have to ask ourselves uh, not just once, but constantly. Because just like those homes uh, of hoarders, what seems normal to us can, by the objective standard of the kingdom of God, truly be rotten. It can be foul. I really appreciate how an author named Arthur Simon frames this. He says, An affluent culture turns our hearts toward fleeting satisfactions and away from God. 
unprecedented prosperity has left our lives full, but not necessarily fulfilled. And he says this, which I think is right on point. The problem is not that we've tried faith and found it wanting, but that we've tried mammon, which is the Bible's term for money or wealth. We've tried mammon and found it addictive. And as a result, find following Christ inconvenient. For Christians, financial faithfulness will always be inconvenient. Wealth is one of the most frequently mentioned obstacles in all of the New Testament and all of the Bible to faithful discipleship, faithful following of Jesus. By the grace of God, it's not impossible. It's not impossible, but the danger is always lurking. It's a little bit like owning a pet lion. It's a little bit like owning a pet lion. It can be done. People have done that and survived. But you better be aware every second of that animal's raw power to just destroy you. If we're going to be wealthy and we're going to be faithful to Christ, we must constantly live with humility that we have what we have solely because God has provided it, with wisdom and with a holy fear of the ability of wealth to in any given moment turn our hearts away from God. Another call to those who are already Christians. We must love the poor and advocate for them. As Christians, it is our responsibility to love and care for the poor people of this region, of our state, of our nation, of our world. That's not something that we should get comfortable outsourcing and assuming that it's someone else's responsibility. We should wrestle. We have to wrestle to determine the best ways to do that. And certainly, given our opportunities, capacity, the kind of roles and vocations that we have, there'll be different responsibilities person to person for what that looks like. But Christian, know for certain it is your responsibility. It is yours and mine as the people of God in this world to care about the poor, to mirror the very heart of God, which is for the poor. Let's also make sure that we see this from James chapter 5. Part of this love part of our responsibility is to become a public advocate for the poor. In this setting to which James is writing, the poor people who are being exploited, they are men and women of this church. They are men and women in these churches to whom James is writing. And so certainly some of what's playing out here in this context is that the church is having to come alongside these exploited poor men and women in their own congregation and to provide for their practical and their tangible needs, which is good and right. It's their responsibility, and they're doing that. But James doesn't stop there. In these six verses, he's publicly rebuking rich, non-Christian landowners for the injustices that they're committing. And he's warning them of this coming judgment of God. So beyond the private, personal care, there's a public, prophetic advocacy on behalf of the poor. And I say that and translate that into our current day. Some current issues of our day, like living wages and the whole debate and conversation about what should we pay workers, or the abuses of cheap overseas labor, or migrant workers, that are right here in our own area. We cannot look at these things through only political or economic lenses. You can't. We have to look at those things through theological and moral lenses. In other words, it's not just about how to govern a society or regulate a business. It's about a God who will bring justice and will bring judgment against injustice. It's about a God whose grace toward us compels us to take up a prophetic public advocacy 
for the poor. Because in Scripture, what you'll find is that God is on the side of the poor. And we should not be on the opposite side of that. If, God is, if God's heart is for the poor, we should not find ourselves opposing the poor in our public advocacy. Practically, there's something you can do every single day as a relatively wealthy Christian. Uh, most of us don't own companies. Uh, we don't sit in positions where we can make employment and salary kinds of decisions. But you might invest in companies that do. And you certainly buy products and goods and services from companies that do. How are those companies making their profit? Are they defrauding workers? Are they not paying their workers enough? If we invest in, if we buy from companies that that are practicing their business that way, are we not complicit in that in some way? Are we not fueling that system that is exploiting the poor? Part of my own repentance in this is just that I'm lazy. I'm lazy. And I tend to just choose the cheapest option when when I need to go buy something. I tend to just choose the cheapest option for everything. And then to add insult to injury, I pat myself on the back for being frugal and for being a good steward of God's money. Sometimes that's true. But what system exists behind that cheapest option? Is it exploiting poor people? Or is is there actually a way into what I buy and the companies that I support in different ways for that to become part of my public prophetic advocacy for the poor? As wealthy Christians, part of our everyday love for the poor is to know and to research the businesses that we support with our wallets. The last call to Christians here, the last one that's implied, is really the least intuitive. And it's that we must not only love the poor, we must also love the rich. We must love the very ones who are doing the exploiting. The rich make a really easy and convenient target, do they not? They make a really easy and convenient target. And in this cultural moment, particularly with the the social justice warrior phenomenon. It's not particularly difficult to denounce the injustices committed by a wealthy few people. Like, that's not really a risky move for you to do in this particular cultural moment because of the day in which we live. But what will the motive be behind your denunciations? What will your motive be? For many, it's that by denouncing people who are a little bit worse than you are, you excuse yourself from having to deal with the very same sin that exists in your own heart. That's why so many social justice warriors and that whole movement in many ways just reeks of this arrogant self-righteousness. Just denounce people that are doing a little bit worse than you are. Count your own life clean. You don't have to even think about the stuff that's going on in your own heart. Instead, we must love the rich, which means opposing them, which means risking prophetically speaking out against misuses and abuses of wealth, but doing that out of a deep love for them and not a self-righteousness against them. Where will that love come from? Because if if I'm honest, and if you're honest, probably in certain cases, that's going to be really hard. Where will that love come from? It comes from exactly what James is saying in this text. Clearly perceiving the fate that awaits the unrighteous rich. The judgment of God against their sin, and the eternal misery that that is. What we read throughout Scripture is that eternity brings with it a great reversal. Where many who are great in this life become the least. And many who are the least in this life become great. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. 
you want to talk about something that's miserable, that your greatest consolation in this is in this life, that your greatest consolation exists in this broken world plagued by injustice, plagued by sin, that that's your best life. That is the definition of miserable. To avoid the dangers of wealth ourselves, to condemn injustice in others, that's one thing. To love people who are on a collision course with eternity, to love people who are on a collision course and judgment at the hands of a God who has heard the cries of the poor and their wages that have been withheld. That is something else. So be that prophetic voice of rebuke, but be that voice in love and for the good of the souls of those wealthy, rich, non-Christians. Instead of a target for our self-righteousness, may they always be a target for our compassion because of the misery that's coming. And be encouraged by this. Like Zacchaeus, it is possible. It is possible for the unrighteous rich to repent and to enter the kingdom of God. It's also possible, like the rich young ruler, to walk away. But how someone responds to you is not on you. You can't control that. What you and I can do, the call to us as Christians, is to lay down on the tracks in front of the rich and warn them of the misery that is coming. close with this. The only hope, men and women, the only hope for the rich, the only hope for the poor, is the intervening mercy of God. Jesus Christ is the only truly righteous one. And entering into this world to rescue us from our unrighteousness, Jesus became the epitome of what James says here in in verse 6. He did not resist our condemnation and murder, but instead endured it for our salvation. Isaiah 53 alludes to that day and says, Like a sheep before his shearers is silent, Jesus opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was oppressed and afflicted. And he was oppressed and afflicted more severely than the worst human injustice ever oppresses or afflicts. But friends, this is what he did for you. This is what Jesus did for you. So that the rich and poor alike might enter the kingdom of God. So that rather than a future of misery, that our greatest joy, our greatest consolation comes not in this life, but before the presence of God for eternity. So may we live with a holy fear of the corrupting power of wealth. May we love the poor. May we love the rich. And may Jesus be our only treasure. Amen. Let me pray for us. God in heaven, of our own injustice and our own complicit, complicity in injustice, we repent. And we ask that we would be those who love people in this world more than wealth and money. And that we would love the poor and advocate for them, privately care for them, and own that responsibility, but also publicly advocate as you give us opportunity to do. We pray that we would likewise love the rich and that they would not be a target of our self-righteousness, but that we would see in them the very same proclivities that exist in our own heart, and that we are so dependent ourselves on the mercy of God just as they are. Help us to be those that warn the rich in this nation, in this world, of the misery that it is to have your greatest consolation in this life. And I pray that we would truly believe that you are our greatest treasure that our greatest treasure would not be here in this life, 
but would be guarded with you for eternity, that we would live our lives in such a way that you are not inconsequential and that reality is not inconsequential, but it, it truly influences every financial decision that we make. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.